0: This official podcast coverage of AusCert's 2012 conference is brought to you by Arbor Networks, Smart, Available, Secure, Datacom TSS, Discreet, Niche, Tailored, and Sophos, Secured. Hey there and welcome to this podcast from AusCert's 2012 conference. I'm Patrick Gray. The following is an interview with Robert Clark, the operational attorney for the U.S. Army Cyber Command. I posted audio of his talk yesterday, uh, where he spoke a lot about international law as it applies to cyber war. But I wanted to pick his brains about something he briefly touched on uh, during his talk. During the presentation, he mentioned that espionage is actually legal under international law. So I caught up with him over lunch and asked him to expand on that, uh, and we had a great chat about the legal aspects of online espionage. Here he is.
1: talking about the international standards and international law. Uh, and my, my favorite aspect on this is uh, duty, general, one of their general counsels, Gary Sharp wrote a book on cyber operations and, and the use of force in cyberspace. And in it, he, he writes, you know, espionage is not illegal. And of course, he caught me. I had to turn the page and It goes, under international law, because I'm sitting here thinking, whoa, wait, wait domestic law, it, it's illegal all over the place. But that's the aspect, under customary international law, it's not illegal. Uh, And and so spying on another country to get their secrets under international law is not illegal. Domestic law—that's where it's going to be prosecuted. And so some of the issues that you're dealing with that—it's not like you're going to have a spy running around your government facilities or doing a drop anymore. It's an aspect of they're going to do it remotely. They're not going to be in your country. So the question is, okay, now how does how does this play into some of the aspects of while law of armed conflict you know isn't going to come into play. Unless the espionage is at a level where there's a use of force, which becomes sabotage. But, you know, can you get what we always joke about being the habeas corpus on somebody to actually prosecute them, you know, from that aspect? So you're going to have to have extradition treaties. You're going to have to do your full-blown criminal investigations that states would do while cooperating with each other to bring any, any, I mean, it's the same thing as you do for any kind of cyber crime if you're investigating that. And that's how you're going to have to get jurisdiction over people who are actually committing espionage state on state from that aspect.
0: Now, I find this idea fascinating because, you know, as you say, it's not like the spies are actually in the countries anymore. Do you think this, it almost strikes me as almost like a little bit of a convenience situation, right, for all governments because it means they could just go burko. Do you think that the fact that there's a bit of a black spot in the law uh, with regard to this uh, explains why there's such a free-for-all going on at the moment in terms of online espionage?
1: Well, you know, it's an interesting point. When we're applying the, the customary law, international law that's been out there, law of armed conflict that's been out there, and I appreciate it, there's a, there's a lot of folks who are saying, you know, it doesn't transfer over well. There are gaps. The, the analogies don't fit from the physical world to the virtual world. But there's a body of lawyers out there that actually, so there's two bodies. One that say, you know, a lot of lawyers out there saying we need treaties, we need to update our laws, we need to do different things. There's a body of lawyers out there. uh, There's a retired Air Force Judge Advocate General, Charlie Dunlop. You know, and, and folks out there are saying, "No, you know something law of armed conflict and in, in the international custom law applies just fine in this area it 's like when we went from having you know having land and, and sea wars, and all of a sudden this strange thing that flew in the sky was unregulated. Well, law of armed conflict started applying to airspace and air power, and you regulated that so our, our, our laws and our international standards that are there are going to have to apply in this field, and they they fit perfectly for what it is you just got to take the time to." Take the international law, take the domestic law, and apply it to the facts that you're faced with for, for that aspect. And, you know, we're seeing that, you know, and, uh, if you're going to do the same type of investigations, you know, if someone's doing some kind of criminal activity to you, and, and again, they're in another state, there are ways to cooperate to sometimes get them to a third-party country, which you have an extradition treaty. Just saw, you know, a talk earlier today where a gentleman was arrested in Nice, in France when he went there on vacation. It was a very favorable aspect to happen because there he left russia and now he's in nice the french arrested him and made it very easy for the extradition aspect on life so the the virtual world is going to play just like your physical world we just have to take the time as i mentioned in my talk sit down with the lawyers walk them through it and they'll apply all those laws that are out there very well to the virtual world
0: so can you imagine a situation where somebody who has engaged in cyber espionage against the U.S. government on behalf of a state is actually going to be arrested in a third jurisdiction and then extradited? I mean, can you actually foresee that ever happening?
1: Well, let's go. You know, you don't even have to limit it to, the, you know, the United States aspects on life. So you're talking about any nation state that loses what it qualifies as its secrets, you know, to be able to sit there and have either cooperative investigations with a foreign jurisdiction and then having that foreign ju- jurisdiction pick up that individual, and then you're now charging them under, your, under the victim state's domestic laws uh, against espionage. So can I foresee it? You know, DOJ ha- had an uh, investigation for a, a case called uh, where they invited two Russian hackers to the United States uh, invited.com.
0: I remember this. This was a job, job offer you cannot refuse.
1: It is a job opportunity. So under that fact pattern, there were two criminals that they got to the United States and then prosecuted them. Uh, and, and so, you know, from that aspect, intelligence, counterintelligence, you, you know, and ironically, in, you know, the, the, the old joke from MASH, intelligence is something I try to stay away from. Um, the, the world that I play in is the computer network defenders. C- intelligence, espionage, counterintelligence that is a different realm than what I advise on and, and and deal on and clearly my opinions here are more Bob Clark's vice any official government position but the processes are set up to again apply physical rules and laws that are out there to the virtual world so any any way that we used to sit there and get a hold of you know different spies in the past you know Alder James your are Richard Hansons, you know or the ones that are foreign you know, that's that's going to come into play in the virtual world.
0: Yesterday, in your talk, you spoke a lot about things like proportionality. You know, uh, and this was all about um, this was all about yeah rules of rules of engagement sort of stuff, right? When when you can respond and why, which didn't really seem to apply to the espionage stuff because there's no one really suffering a great deal. Uh, there's no ongoing pain. It's a little bit difficult to justify, as as you said, at, uh, dropping a bomb down someone's shorts when all they're doing is owning up RSA. Because it is such a free-for-all, do you, do you think that there needs to be perhaps some sort of convention that can guide states and their intelligence agencies on what an acceptable level of
1: espionage is? Because it seems like things are just out of control at the moment. I think, and I'm trying to remember, you know, when I gave our talk and I was pulling up a couple of web shots of the different aspects, and, and one of them was uh, our Secretary of Defence talking about... Uh, Interacting with uh, some of his Chinese counterparts that he just recently went on uh, travels for. You know, there are a lot of. What am I looking for? There are a lot of uh, parties or organizations that are in favor of. It's like the red phone back in the nuclear war. So it, it set up a path for clear communications so things didn't escalate. And I've heard the same thing, you know, thrown out that that we should have a cyber red phone so that things don't escalate and get out of hands of, you know, being from espionage to getting into something considered a use of force, uh, which could, you know, escalate matters from that aspect. You're asking me, Patrick, a a question that is pay grades above me uh, that I don't have visibility on. And and at this point in time, I'm glad to be back down into into my little uh, advising position I have right now. So, uh, you know, it's hard to say. Would it be good? You know, there's always good in trying and, and talking, uh, and, and it's particularly speaking with all players in the field. Uh, I think that uh, only good can come from it. You know, w- what those powers be, the, they want to make something of that, is again beyond me.
0: Now, another thing that came across in your talk is that there is a fair degree of wiggle room in international law. Uh, as, as it applies to cyber war. There's a fair bit of interpretation. I understand that's the case with most law. Would you concede that the U.S. government has a history of fairly selectively and unevenly applying international law to its military actions?
1: No, not, not really. You know, the aspects, it, it's the international law realm is and the, and the legal practitioners that, that practice in there, you know, it's an interesting realm to look at in terms of it. A lot of my presentations that I used to do, I used to quote a Law Review article that said, you know, there's been no codification of what a use of force is. And then the Hague did that in 2010, had a very lengthy study to look at, to try to capture the codification of what the use of force is. You know, customary international law, and, and this is the aspect that, you know, quoting from the different Law Review articles and, and the scholars that have written on this, you know, is very... Uh, open up to interpretation. It's very state-dependent. And, you know, you've seen history with the Security Council and the players that were in there with the aspect of being able to go to the Security Council under a you know, getting a resolution to authorize the use of force. And we we're seeing things where the vote would become, you know, party lines. It's four against two. And so you never got the unanimous decision to use force. So in terms of what the definition or interpretation of those areas are going to be, very state-centric, probably, from that aspect. But I think it's the best thing working right now. It, it allows you to stand up and state your reasons and your rationale to the world and have the world look back and say, we agree with this, we don't agree with this. Uh, and, and so I think that's the best system going on right now.
0: Now, I want to ask you this, obviously not as a representative of the U.S. Department of Defense, but your own opinion. What is your feeling on how things could play out for Mr Julian Assange?
1: You have taken me well out of my range and my comfort zone. Um, That's a Department of Justice matter, and really, Patrick, it's an area that I don't practice in on that. So uh, I'm just sitting back and... So it's got
0: nothing to do with DOD?
1: at all. You'd have to ask DOJ something <laughs> on that one. Um, right now, where the, where that is, you know, it's in the legal process from under DOJ's control. So, yeah, again, that's, that's outside of my realm and my comfort zone. <laughs>
0: the comfort zone, absolutely. Stuxnet was something that came up also uh, uh, in your talk. Now, it was interesting to me that you said that this wasn't a cyber attack because Iran didn't claim it was a cyber attack. If Iran had claimed it was a cyber attack, what would that mean? Would that mean that they would have been able to respond proportionally? Uh, would it have been considered an act of war? Well,
1: see, that's, that's an interesting point. So when you're applying that aspect and looking at what happened, and, and, and I clearly take my lead right from uh, United States Cyber Command and their Staff Judge Advocate, you know, Colonel Gary Brown, who had also uh, written a, an article that said, you know, the reason Stuxnet was not a cyber attack was because Iran didn't declare it so, But now the pain has stopped, so what can you do? Absolutely nothing. You, you cannot respond uh, under the law of armed conflict if that conflict is over. And uh, ironically, back to that Hague Convention where they were trying to codify what was a use of force, that's what, you know, they analyzed several situations in terms of what was armed aggression, what was the use of force, and once it's over and the pain has stopped, then there's no self-defense there left to do. And, and in this situation, so, had there been an ongoing pain, then there's an argument that could be made. Now we can do something if you've got the attribution down, and you're going to go down that path to claim self-defense. I'm going to take the next steps. But, the c-
0: but, but at the time, if they had have declared it, that could they have proportionally responded by interfering with the Scada facility in the United States under international law?
1: Well, now you're assuming that, that the United States was the one who did it.
0: Well, say they had some reason to believe that the United States may have been involved in this. But, I mean, okay, so now we're getting into the discussion of around attribution, which is why some of this law just doesn't really work that well.
1: You know, and that's going to always be the challenge. Um, you know, the case that we're looking at, and we always quote, is the al-Shifa case, which is where President Clinton, uh, basically in response to the bombing of uh, several uh, embassies around the world, uh, notified or found at the Sudan uh, factory in Sudan, was Al Qaeda was producing chemical weapons, and he made a determination, and he notified Congress that because of the ongoing threat that's going on uh, on this, we are going to take out this facility. So there, there are a lot of on the law of armed conflict situations in which you're going to apply it to take a particular action. When you're, but that,
0: I mean, that can't be ironclad attribution either. I mean, you're saying, well, how could how could Iran tie Stuxnet to the U.S.? I mean, how could the U.S. tie, uh, you know, tie those embassy bombings to that facility? I guess you know what I'm talking about is attribution is about degrees of certainty, and I think it was it would have been a reasonable assumption on behalf of Iran to assume that Israel and the United States were behind it. I think the security community figured that one out in about a week, so surely that's a bit of a hollow argument, isn't it, that the the, the attribution argument in that case?
1: Well, so and here's the aspect, and I have fun with my kids for the class that I teach on this one, as far as going towards attribution. Michael Schmidt, who's one of the leading scholars writing on the law of armed conflict in the cyber world, you know when a, when a commander has to make a decision at any level, he has to base it on the totality of the circumstances he's faced with, based on the intelligence reporting that he's getting at, the, at that point in time and that moment. And so the question goes: What's the standard for that? Is it a preponderance of the evidence? No, it's kind of a low standard. Is it? beyond a reasonable doubt, the same thing we would use for our criminal courts. Michael Schmidt says, no, he has it somewhere, he, he advises that it's somewhere in between there, that it's clear and compelling evidence that you've got there. And that's what this case al Shifa says. They looked at the information and the intelligence that was presented to President Clinton, and from our perspective, you know, you've got to love courts, because the court said, you know, we're not going to touch this. This is a constitutional question that belongs to the president, so we don't have to rule on this. We don't have any review process whatsoever. Oh, but if we are going to, and they went through the analysis of that totality of circumstances of what was presented to them as far as why that was you know, a valid decision on the side of the president to take action. Each state's going to have to do that now. Now, that's the problem I give to my kids in my class. We'll walk through a scenario where I'll say, country A has hit country B. And the intelligence organization of country A come back and say. We saw that box, we, we had spies on that box, we, we, we exploited it, we saw them develop the zero day, we saw them, you know, harness it, test it, and that was what was used on us, and they hit us, you're authorised to head back. And I
0: think- okay, okay, so say Iran had a, a, a proof that it was the work of a state. Would they have been able to respond by performing some sort of SCADA, similar sort of infrastructure crippling attack towards uh, that other country or is because it's a one-off thing they just wouldn't have been able to do that?
1: When you're talking if there's an ongoing threat so you're going to use, you either go to the UN uh, National uh, national Assembly to say we need to exercise you know our, our security to respond back from that and get UN's blessing to do it or you emphasize Article 51 self-defense. At that situation... The, the, the attack that occurred from what I understand uh, from folks like Rick Howard at IDEFENSE, Defense when they have done the analysis on it, was when it was over, the pain had now stopped. So there is no threat there. There is no pain. So under international law, and in, in, in Bob Clark's personal humble opinion, there's no ongoing threat that authorizes you now to respond.
0: All right, Bob Clark, that was absolutely fascinating stuff. I very much enjoyed speaking with you, and I'm sure we're going to have you on the show again this year. Uh, Pleasure to chat to you, and we'll, we'll speak to you soon.
1: Patrick, always the best. Love listening to you guys. You do a great job at risky business.